reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. Good morning. It is just so very good to be together with you here this morning. I have been incredibly blessed and encouraged already here this morning. Um, I can't remember exactly the last time I was here together with you, but I see new faces that I've never seen before. Maybe it's because some of you grew up, uh, some of the little ones, and I don't recognize you anymore. Maybe there's new people and visitors, whatever the case is. Uh, I, I'm just so encouraged. And the singing here this morning, music team, you did an excellent job uh, with leading and being able to hear your voices in the congregation singing. It is just so encouraging for me to be here together with you guys. Uh, and given the season that you guys are in right now, uh, I can imagine some of the challenges and uh, struggles that you might be facing. But I just want to encourage you. And my prayer is that you guys would be encouraged that you would continue running the race, that you would not grow weary and lose heart. Uh, what I see here this morning, what I feel here this morning, I know that God is here and he's working in your midst and he has a plan for you guys. And don't give up. You guys, uh, you have no clue where you're planting seeds, where the Lord is moving and working in you and in your community. Uh, and uh, in the words of the prophet Zechariah, actually just came to my mind as I was sitting there where he says, do not despise the day of small things. Uh, you don't know what the Lord is working uh, and in his stillness and his goodness. So I just want to encourage you guys uh, and send greetings from our church in Straffordville. Uh, we pray for you guys regularly uh, in our Sunday morning. You're part of our prayer rotation there. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a Region 9 pastor's lunch, as we do uh, three or four times a year, and we invited Bill and Sarah to join us. At first, they just said no. They're like, no, we can't. Or Bill, sorry, Bill said no at first. Sarah's correcting me, you're right. Uh, and they were reluctant, or he was reluctant. He figured, well, they're not pastors, they don't fit in. But I twisted his arm a little bit and, and kept prodding. And finally, Bill gave in and he called Sarah and they showed up to our pastor's lunch. And I tell you, it was so encouraging to have Bill and Sarah there. And I'll let you in on a little secret. It felt like they belonged there. I'll leave that there. You guys can do with that what you guys see fit. Anyway, um, you guys are, have been doing a sermon series on Philippians that you guys started uh, not that long ago. And I, uh, I listened to the first two messages of that series. I have not been able to listen to last Sunday's message, but I'll tell you. I was so encouraged and blessed listening to those messages, um, particularly thinking of the message that Bill preached uh, on the last half of chapter one. I was just so encouraged. Uh, this whole theme of Philippians, as you guys know, the main theme of the book of Philippians is Paul's zeal and his joy in the Lord to spread the gospel message. And where is he doing it from? He's sitting in prison as he writes it as he writes this letter to the church, and yet we feel his zeal and his joy in spite of terrible circumstances. I think we underestimate how difficult it might have been for Paul, even though his letters shine and it's good, 
and he does have joy, but we can't discount that he's literally sitting in prison. Uh, and that's where he's writing this from. So the theme of Philippians, Paul's zeal and joy in the Lord to spread the gospel message and to thank the Philippian church for their gift uh, to him as he's sitting there in, in prison. Uh, last Sunday, I believe uh, Gavin Michaels was here, right? Is that correct? He preached and he spoke on chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now those verses right there, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, those are fundamental it's a fundamental passage to understanding Paul's letter to the Philippians uh, and to understand what God's call is for his children here on earth. 2 verses 1 through 11 is the heart of Philippians. I joked with Gavin three weeks ago that when he came here to speak on, speak on that passage, if he would mess it up and make a mess of it, I would come and clean up after him. Now, I have not had a chance to listen to it, so I have no clue, and I actually fully trust that he did not make a mess of it. I'm sure he did just fine, just fine with it. Um, so chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is actually deemed the most studied, most preached on, most loved, and most passage in all of Scripture, according to some scholars. The most loved and the most preached on passage in all of Scripture. So before you actually get all anxious and, uh, and fear that I'm going to just repeat Gavin's sermon or just focus on I'm not. I'm going to preach on the passage uh, Bill uh, read for us, but before we go there, I feel like I need to do a bit of a recap because it just excited me so much. Um, because we need to understand that the passage Gavin preached on is foundational to understanding the rest of the book. Professor of New Testament, uh, sorry, Professor of New Testament, uh, Michael DeFazio from Ozark Christian College calls these verses a call to cruciformity. A call to cruciformity, which simply means taking on the way of the crucified one. The call to cruciformity. In other words, we would call it more in simple terms, becoming like Christ. That is our calling. Christ's perfectly exemplified what it looks like to be fully human in the way God created us and meant for us to be. Christ perfectly exemplified that. And that's why we're called to Christ-likeness. Because Christ exemplified perfectly what God intended from the very beginning for all of us had sin not come into the picture. The contrast that we find in verses 1 through 11 is the contrast between living for self or living for God. It's the contrast between I want what I want, I'm going to do what I, what I have to do to get it, or what do you need and how can I help you? It's the contrast between look how great I am and or look how great God is. And because of how great he is, uh, our life has value. And because we know our life has value because of how great he is, I'm going to show value to others and value others above myself. And this is not about putting ourselves down or telling ourselves that I'm just a loser and I don't matter. The point is choosing to put others ahead of ourselves because we've encountered God's love for us in Christ and we know who we are, which in turn enables us 
to be secure in our identity and then put others ahead of ourselves. So it's not about putting ourselves down. We need to understand that. It's about, in humility, recognizing who we are in Christ, our identity being secure in that, and then choosing to put others ahead of ourselves. These verses really are incredible. And because of all this is why Paul can have joy while sitting in a prison cell for simply telling others about this Jesus who did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. But instead, he humbled himself, became a servant, and was obedient to God's call for him. This is why Paul is so passionate about the gospel, about sharing how the, how the God of the universe literally stepped down to earth, became just like one of us, limiting himself, choosing to limit himself to human, lim human limitations, served us and loved us, that is what he did. God serving and loving us. Step down to become one of us. God stooping down. Becoming like us. And then he showed us the ultimate display of his love by laying down his life for us. He took the punishment that we deserve and he died for us. God loves us that much. That is the gospel right there. That is what God has done for us. It's the cruciform life that Jesus exemplified because of God's love for us and what we're called to. So because of all of this, Paul says stuff like, so here I'm basically very briefly recapping all of chapter one and two so far. Paul says stuff like, I pray with joy. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. May your love abound more and more. Be pure and blameless. Be confident and proclaim the gospel without fear. I continue to rejoice because what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit, striving together for the faith. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, and value others above yourselves. This is just incredible that Paul could say these things, all because of his encounter with Jesus. All because of him knowing who he was. Being secure in his identity. Knowing what God had done for him. So, is it fair to ask, where do we find our joy? And are we ready to live the life that we're called to live because of Christ's example and love for us as we see in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2? And with that recap in mind, let's continue today with today's passage. Allow me to reread um, verses 12 and 13, chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, to con continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul starts this section off by saying, Therefore, 
And I'm sure you guys have heard it many times. Whenever there's a therefore in the Bible, you need to look back because he's saying it for a reason. Therefore, because of what he just said, because of everything he said in verses 1 through 11, he says, therefore. And that's part of the reason why I started off with this recap today. Therefore, because of everything he reminded of us, reminded us of, he says, as you have always obeyed. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, Paul is urging obedience. Obedience to the call God has for our lives, just like Jesus obeyed the call that God had for his life. Paul is showing us what living a cruciform life should look like in the church. He's writing to the Philippians. He's showing them and reminding them what this life of following Christ should look like in the church. And it looks like obeying Christ by working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, of course, we could spend a lot of time unpacking this, and there's a lot here that, that could be unpacked. But in short, so that we can get on and not have the sermon too long, because one little girl already requested to me, of me this morning that there's batas up, so please don't preach too long. So I want to be careful not to take too much time here this morning. Uh, but in this passage, to obey, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling... In short, it's living out our faith. This is, Paul is not talking here about earning our salvation. Remember, he's writing to brothers and sisters. He's writing to those who understand what Christ has done for them. He's talking about living out your faith. Work it out. Work out what has been given to you. Show that it actually works, that it means something. Live it out in worship to God with fear and trembling. This is not talking about being scared. Out of a place of being scared, desperately trying to do some works here, some works there, and some works wherever, because out of being scared and desperation, maybe God will be finally be pleased with me if I do enough. That's not what this is talking about. Out of fear and trembling, wreck, having a holy fear of God, not being scared, but recognizing who God is. That God is God and that he does have all authority in heaven and on earth, but also that he is for us. That's why he sent Jesus. Jesus perfectly exemplified God's love for us, the Father's heart for us, everything he did for us. So it's not out of a place of being scared. It's a holy reverence in fear, recognizing the authority of God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is above all. And it is Him that sacrificed everything for us so that we would, out of reverence and holy fear, worship Him from a heart of reverence and thanksgiving. Working out our salvation. Showing that it actually means something. James says that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, is what James says, who is the half-brother uh, to Jesus. It's about putting what we have received to work, to good use. Asking ourselves the question, does our faith work? 
Does it amount to something? And actually, this would in many ways be the criticism of agnostics or maybe even atheists. They say that your faith is useless. Religion is useless. useless. Faith is useless. What does it amount to? It's just this nutty stuff in your head. You're convincing yourself of something. And what does it actually amount to? This is part of why Paul says work out your faith. This is part of why James says that faith without works is dead. Because the reality is, it does amount to something. And it amounts to more than just fire insurance, if you know what I mean. It amounts to something. Think about somebody that gives you a whole bunch of gifts. You're a poor person, homeless, and they give you a house to live in. They give you a car to drive. They give you tools to start a trade, to start your own business. What does all of that amount to if you don't do anything with it, with what's been given to you? And this is all it's saying here. We have been given something, an incredible gift. Don't squander it. It amounts to something, especially for God's kingdom. It's interesting that Paul says, as you obeyed in my presence, now also obey in my absence. Oh dear. I wonder if Paul is putting his finger a little bit on a bit of a human problem. If you're not tracking with me, let me ask you a question that maybe will help you track with me. Here's my question. When do you obey the speed limit? <laughs> you obey the speed limit when? When the police aren't looking? <laughs> when they are looking. When the police are looking, we obey the speed limit. What do we do when we're convinced that there's no police for miles around and we're late for our appointment? What do we do? Most of us, if you are one, one, a rare person here this morning that doesn't do that good for you, you're a little bit more holy and righteous than the rest of us. I'm kidding. But anyway, we all do that. Uh, it's so easy to do that. And I think that example is getting a little bit to what Paul is pointing to here. I have this funny story. When I, I used to own my own business, I built houses. I was a framing contractor. Framing houses, not people, just to be clear. Um, and, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so my crew was working, and we were used to it when we worked in subdivisions in the cities that uh, we were always kind of look, on the lookout for safety inspectors, kind of the way Johnny's lookout, on the lookout for police when he's speeding. But anyway, and so... This one day, we were working on the roof, and of course, that's the worst time to have a visit from a safety inspector because the chances of you being completely tied off 100% the way you should be, the way Ministry of Labor wants us to be, is hard to do and to do, to do your job well and efficiently. So everybody tries to get away with as much as possible when it comes to working on a roof in the construction industry. That's just how it is. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying how it is. And so this was a day we were sheeting the roof. As per my standard practice every day, when break time came, I would go to Tim Hortons and get coffee for my whole crew, as I would do every day. And so uh, I had left the job site to go get coffee. And when I came back, I'm driving down the street, and there I see that white minivan, the Ministry of Labor. And I'm like, uh-oh. Because I knew even before I left, my guys weren't tied off properly. 
and so I'm like, uh-oh. I pull up. The Ministry of Labor guy comes up to me, and this is what he said. I kid you not. He said, when the cat's away, the mice will play. I thought it was interesting. Obviously, the guys told him, oh, the boss isn't here right now. He left. So he assumed that the guys weren't tied off properly just because I wasn't there. But of course, I did not let him know that they also weren't tied off properly while I was there. I didn't say that part. But anyway, uh, it's interesting how Paul is reminding the Philippian church to be just as excited about the gospel as when he was personally with them. Don't lose focus. It's easy somehow for us to sometimes forget. Think about the Old Testament, how often and why God had to institute all these things, these rituals for them to do as an act of remembering, 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 because in our humanness, it's so easy for us to forget. And I think that's part of what Paul is pointing to here. It's he was worried that in his absence, the Philippian church, which was one of the first churches Paul planted, uh, and he was worried that they would maybe get distracted or lose focus or lose heart. So I suppose, I was thinking about this with regard to New Life Christian Fellowship, I suppose it would actually be an appropriate question here given the season that you yourselves are finding in, finding yourselves in. Because you don't formally have a pastor right now, are you continuing to strive for obedience to Christ? Or are you losing heart and growing weary. And if you're struggling with some of that, I think that makes you normal. Um, but I think the word for you here this morning would be, don't give up and look to Christ. The point is not about, what, about your leaders, although I'm confident that the ones that are here that are uh, serving on a volunteer capacity, giving so much of their time and energy. I'm confident that they care and that they're eagerly trying to encourage you and to maintain joy, to keep looking to Jesus. But the point here is looking to Jesus as our example and living the life that we are called to live regardless of who's watching or who's leading. Because Jesus is our example. He is our ultimate leader regardless so Paul says, in my absence, do the same. For it is God who works in you to will and act. God is the one working in you to will and to act. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who works in you to will and to act. Remember what chapter 1 verse 6 said? It says, there being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who is working in us. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That was prophesied about when Jesus would come, when the Holy Spirit would come. And so how does this relate to what we're talking about here in Philippians? Paul says, it is God who works in you to will and to act. 
this prophecy in Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. So stop to think about it. When is it that we are most likely to make good choices, make good decisions? When we have a heart change that we actually want to make those decisions. The prophecy here is about that God, by his spirit, will bring, take out a heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh. He changes our desires. Through Jesus, through Pentecost, through the Holy Spirit, we experience redemption. We experience a transformed life. We experience a new heart. And that heart is God giving us a change of mind, a change of heart as a result of looking at his love for us and our desires change. Warren Wearsby says, God must work in us before he can work through us. This is amazing. When you really stop and think about it, God is the one that acts. He acted in sending his son. He acted in redemption. He acted in resurrection. He acted in Pentecost. He acted in sending the Spirit. And he's acting through the Spirit, empowering us to will and to act. To work on our salvation in fear and trembling. So all along the way, it's God. God doing all these things. So that tells me that Paul is simply telling us here, or asking us, work it out. God has given you all these things. Don't waste it. But yet we can't take credit for all of it. This is part of the gospel. Moving on to verses 14 through 18. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. According to these verses... What does living the cruciform life look like for the church? Any guesses? According to these verses. Do everything without grumbling. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But boy, is it hard. Isn't it hard? But Paul literally says here, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Paul is intentionally contrasting the life of a believer with the lives of those in the world and have no, those who have no ultimate hope and don't worship God. They complain and they find fault. That's part of our sinful human nature is finding fault, always pushing the blame, arguing and complaining and grumbling. Christians are called to rejoice and to have joy is what Paul is pointing to. We have every reason to rejoice and to have joy, but the truth is we often don't, even though we know we have every reason. What's it like when you work with someone or are surrounded by someone who is constantly thankful and just 
generally a positive demeanor. What's it like working with somebody like that eight hours a day, five days a week? Pretty encouraging, isn't it? What's it like working with somebody five, eight hours a day, five days a week who grumbles nonstop? What's that like about everyone and everything? It encourages you like crazy, right? No, it doesn't. It has a way of getting us down. And those who grumble about everyone and everything, what do you think they're saying about you when you're not around? Right? Grumbling and not finding fault. Paul literally says that when we don't grumble and argue, we shine like stars in a warped and crooked generation. Think about this for a bit. Paul is saying that one of the best ways to shine the light of Jesus in a dark world is to not grumble or argue. Isn't that a stark contrast to what we are experiencing in our society? Look at social media. Look at news. Look everywhere. What do we have? We have grumbling. We have finger-pointing, fault-finding, negativity to the max everywhere. I mean, in COVID, wow, it just, I think it it just made it worse. Uh, It brought so much more of it to the surface yet. Grumbling and being argumentative as a posture may be one of the greatest forms of worldliness. For those of you who grew up in a very conservative Mennonite background, you will know that a key teaching or theme that they loved to harp on was don't be like the world. Get rid of worldliness. Don't be like the world. But the sad part was so often it was just focused on our outward appearance. How you look, how you dress. And if you dress just right and talk just right, then you're not being worldly. But I actually don't find that in Scripture. What I find in Scripture is don't be worldly. Don't allow your heart to act and think and behave like the world does. And grumbling is one of the key ways to be worldly. Isn't that challenging? It challenges me. That is so challenging. Because Paul says here that when we Don't grumble. We shine like stars. We shine like stars. Grumbling and being argumentative is one of the greatest forms of worldliness because it is the opposite of the cruciform life that we witnessed in Jesus. The language Paul is using here in these verses, uh, in verses 14 through 16, The language is Old Testament language. Shining like stars, holding to the word of life. It's Old Testament covenant language that God used with Israel. We find these things repeated in various ways in the Old Testament from God to his people. So why does this matter? Why am I bringing this up? It matters because Paul is saying here that his covenant children today are those In the world, just like Israel was, just like God sent Israel into the world and said he wanted them to be a light to the Gentiles, that was his mission for Israel, to be a light to the Gentiles, that just like them, that whoever today demonstrates a cruciform life 
by working out their salvation, and it, amount, and it actually amounts to something, especially not grumbling or arguing. These are the ones, like Israel of the Old Testament, going out and being God's representatives to the world. That's what Paul is pointing to here by using the Old Testament language. That today, God's new covenant people are the ones who see Jesus, recognize Jesus, surrender to Jesus, worship Jesus, and it amounts to something, and we go out into the world and we shine like stars. Those are God's representatives in the world today. And the crazy thing about this is this is how we draw people in with this attitude. I shouldn't say crazy, I should say amazing. It is the aroma of Christ when we go out in a dark and crooked world and we shine like stars by actually being thankful, not grumbling, not fault-finding and arguing about everything. This is being the aroma of Christ. A key part here is the beginning of verse 16, as you hold firmly to the word of life, Paul says, as you hold firmly to the word of life. This is referencing Jesus. When we look to John, I'm going to quickly turn there and read a few verses. John chapter 1, we read, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now I'm going to jump over to verse 12 and 14. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We hold on to the word of life. Jesus is the word of life. He is the one that demonstrated all of this. In verses 16 through 18, Paul says, If they remain obedient while he's absent and look to Jesus and his glorious good news, allow it to transform their lives and become more like him, work out their salvation with fear and trembling, shining like stars in a dark and crooked world, then, Paul says... He will know that everything he did, everything he suffered for and was willing to suffer for, was not in vain. It was all worth it. It was all worth it. Listen to verses 17 and 18 again. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's all worth it. And I think that's part of the word of encouragement for you guys here this morning. Don't give up. Whatever you feel like you have to sacrifice right now and give a little bit more of yourself because you don't have a a paid pastor here who's taking the lead in some areas. Whatever you're doing to have to give a little more of yourself, believe in your heart that it's worth it. That it's worth it. You have no clue how God is using that to build up his kingdom, to plant seeds or to make a seed grow and water it. Don't give up. Even though Paul has to suffer and be poured out like a drink offering, he says he is glad and rejoices with them from prison, from prison. So they should certainly be glad and rejoice too with him is what he is saying here. They should rejoice. 
where do we find our joy? And I know that's the theme question here that's been asked again and again. I know I heard Bill say it. Where do we find our joy? Why do we struggle so much with this? When we look at the beauty of everything God has done for us, his incredible love for us, all the gifts, and that it's actually him working all along and doing all these things to work in us, to change our hearts, to give us a new heart, to change our desire, to empower us with his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead, that power is now at work within us. All those things that God did for us and is doing, why is it that we still struggle sometimes with rejoicing or having joy? And I think the answer could be a variety of things. Sometimes it's just that we lose focus. Sometimes we lose our vision and calling. We get distracted. We look, we put our eyes somewhere else and we focus on other things. Sometimes we get our priorities disoriented and we put our priorities in the wrong place. Sometimes, because of maybe all of the above, we just lose the joy of our salvation. I would like to read for us, and I'm getting very close to my closing here, so just bear with me. I would like to read for us Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. This is David talking. This is David, part of his prayer after he was confronted about all the sin and garbage in his life that he was hiding. And as a result of him being confronted, he did repent. And this is part of his prayer. And David says this, Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. My question is, I wonder sometimes if we have lost the joy of our salvation. David literally prayed, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. I think we would do well to pray that prayer often. Create in me a clean heart. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Now this is an interesting thing as we close and we, the challenge is where is our joy and what does it look like to live a cruciform life and what has God all done for us? The interesting thing here is I can't just say make up your mind to be more joyful. Yes, maybe that's part of it, but how do you force yourself to have joy? And the answer is we can't really. Part of it is because the definition of joy, as was mentioned in previous sermons, it's not about happiness. It's not about trying harder to be happy. The definition of joy is gladness, calm delight, and even cheerfulness. But it's coming from a place of having hope. Our joy comes from somewhere else, the joy of our salvation. So it's not about guilt-tripping you that you don't have enough joy. Because then all of us would feel guilty at times. And maybe we should if it's our own fault, if we're getting distracted intentionally, if we're playing with the fire of sin and think that it's not affecting us. 
Yes, we do. There's repenting that needs to be done as David had to do when he was confronted. But our prayer should be create in me a clean heart and restore to me the joy of our salvation. And I think as our focus goes there, God honors that and answers that prayer and restores to us the joy of our salvation, which then leads to even a level of cheerfulness and calmness and peace and hope in the midst of struggle and trials and difficult times. So my prayer for us and for you is that the joy of your salvation would be restored. I invite you to pray with me. Part of my prayer this morning, I read from a devotional that really encouraged me, and I just want to read that as part of my prayer here this morning. God of redemption, your hope is always before us, and your faithfulness is always behind us. Through our day, though our days are fraught with anxiety and waiting, we trust that you see us and care about us. Help us today to rest in you and see you for who you are and not for who my circumstances would make you out to be. You have promised never to leave us or forsake us. Thank you for that promise. Help me to remember it. Father, I pray that you would create in us a pure heart. I pray, Father, that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation. I pray, Father, for everyone here at New Life Christian Fellowship and for those they're ministering to in their families, in their communities, their neighbors, their workplaces, at school, on the streets, wherever they are, I pray, Father, that they would have joy and shining your light into a dark world that so desperately needs hope and light. And that regardless of our situation, that we would be able to value others as above ourselves, so that we would be able to show them hope and joy, and that we would be able to not grumble. Father, we need your power and your strength in all of this. We do confess that we need to repent of so often just looking at ourselves and thinking, woe is me. And Father, help us to recognize everything you have said and done for us and that you have given us a, us a new identity and that out of that identity, we pray that you would help us to place others ahead of ourselves and to be thankful and to have at hearts that are grateful. That is my prayer for myself and for everyone here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.